Welcome to our third podcast in the White Paper White Light series. I'm Mike Bell, I'm Chairman of Two Lumping Trusts, Croydon Health Services and Barking Haven and Redbridge Hospitals. This series seeks to shine a white light on key issues within the White Paper. This podcast will consider how system leadership across different organisations has manifested itself during the pandemic. We'll focus on group models on ICS and we'll look at regional levels as well. And we'll examine how this may develop in the light of the white paper. We'll seek to explore some of the practical issues of leading across organisations and how these can be surmounted. And we'll consider some of the practical issues of staff sharing, including memorandums of understanding and how this could be a model for the future. Finally, we will also seek to consider how the equalities, diversity and inclusion legislation may impact upon system workforce. I'm joined today by three colleagues, Nena, Ben and Rudora. First of all, I'd like them to say a little bit about their recent, current and future roles. So Nena, could I ask you to say that? Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be with you. My name is Nena Utsuji. I am currently Medical Director and Deputy Chief Exec at Croydon Health Services. I'm also the Joint Clinical Lead for Southwest London. In the future, in the very near future, I am excited to be moving to North Central London and taking up the position of Chief Executive of North Middlesex University Hospital, working in partnership with the Royal Free Hospital. And then I think congratulations on the move to North Middlesex. Ben. Hi, everybody. My name is Ben Morin. I'm the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of Barking, Haven and Redbridge University Hospitals NHS Trust, uh, which I had the privilege to join in January of this year. Last year, during the first waves of the pandemic, I worked in NHS England and Improvement um, across London and hope to uh, talk a bit about that in coming minutes. I'm really looking forward in the next year to working more closely with colleagues in Bart's Health across North East London as we think about the way trust can come together um, in the next phase of the NHS's quest for joint working. Thank you, Ben. And Udara. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I'm Udara Ranasinghe. I'm a partner in the Employment, Pensions and Immigration team here at DAC Beechcroft, and I head up the health employment practice over the last 15 months or so during the pandemic, uh, we've been privileged to serve the NHS, supporting them in uh, effectively their employment needs across the country and supporting their efforts to ensure services provide, provided are run smoothly and efficiently. Thank you, Adara. I'd like to kick off with some reflections on system leadership during the, the pandemic. Nana, could I kick off with you, and particularly thinking about your role across Southwest London, both with the acute sector, but also working with primary care. Could you give us any sort of personal reflections from that period? Thanks, Mike. So um, I have been celebrating, I think, more than anything else, um, reflections over that period of time. And I think firstly, to acknowledge what a difficult period it was and how the NHS in true glory always rises to challenge. And I think that's where the concept of system became much more concrete by virtue of the need. Um, I want to acknowledge, particularly in the first wave, that the knowledge void that existed and the fact that we had a shared problem. And those were two incredible incentives to, to bring us together, both in clinical, operational, and other spheres, and, and also in terms of, of finance. 
few elements. I would say curiosity was a, a big element. Working in a knowledge void, there was a huge want for knowledge, a huge sharing of knowledge, and the um, facilitation of information being shared with the right purpose, I think, was a huge enabler of how we managed to, to work together. That was also reflected in, in collaboration. I think frequent touch points, and that was both at place level at Croydon, working across the hospital, primary care, palliative care, um, public health, but also at system level in southwest London. And those touch points were multi-professional, open, honest, challenging conversations that allowed us to compare and better understand if there were any developing inequalities in terms of what we were delivering, um, where we would need to have a redress and an action taken quite quickly. I think I want to call out as well commitment. Um, it wasn't easy, but there was a real loyalty from every partner to come back to the table even when things got hard and recognizing that risk in, in the in the arena where knowledge was limited was something that was held with a little bit more um, ownership, perhaps. I wouldn't use the word comfort uh, than we might ordinarily do. I want to leave with two other concepts, and that's one of compassion and that coming together regularly, how important it was in terms of supporting system leaders through quite a, a difficult um, process, but also the recognition of the impact on our staff and trying to find collective uh, solutions for that. There was a little bit of a, a, a disconnect, I think, because of the nature of the crisis with necessarily having the voice of, of our people, of our residents. But that's something as we move from the foothills of one peak to the next that we're continuing to, to try and encourage more and more. And lastly, just to say that this was not just um, about a, a hospital in a place, in a system. It was also within the region. And so the examples I gave of those frequent touch points, collaboration, curiosity, and knowledge sharing was something that was reflected. As a, as a leader within that system, I think there was something about the pivotal place and the working across four axes within an organization to keep our staff and our patients safe, within our place to make sure that we had our residents in our hands, within our Southwest London system to make sure we were providing equal opportunities and equal care, and within the London region to make sure that learning was shared between different ICSs. I think that would be my start of the 10, Mike. Thank you, Nana. And uh, Ben, clearly you had two very different roles between the first wave and the second wave. Um, and I wonder if we could get you to reflect a little bit upon the, um, your experiences in the first wave, particularly in relation to the rapid establishment of the Nightingale. Happy to, Mike. I remember when the Nightingale team first came together at the Excel on the first Sunday, and it was the most uh, momentous thing. I saw hundreds of people I'd formerly worked with in the NHS, all in one building, coming together to seek to turn an exhibition centre into a hospital. And within two weeks, that was achieved. And we trained over 2,000 staff to be able to work at the Nightingale um, and be ready to provide care. I think we're really fortunate that we didn't have to provide care at scale to hundreds of people at the Excel. It was always meant to be there on, on standby but I think the speed at which we got people trained was something that stand out to me in particular because formerly some of the training that we provided to allow people to have competence in critical care had taken the NHS years to provide uh, and yet within two to three weeks many able clinical colleagues could step in and provide a supporting role having undertaken training on site there. 
Of course, we also face challenges. We, we couldn't get enough staff available at points to provide the care that would be optimal across all of London. Uh, and I think we may come on to talk about what our learning from that, but we certainly showed much more agility and flexibility in getting professionals to where they needed to, both in the Nightingale and in other trust settings. So I remember that period with uh, a great sense of, of pride, but also um, seeking to remember it because I think it shows that if you hit a crisis or look at things anew, uh, you can move away from some of the standard processes and procedures that we've commonly adopted in the NHS. And if that is kept beyond the pandemic as a style of leadership and management, I think we'll do ourselves very well. Ben, thank you. And I wondered if there were any reflections that you think um, we should be drawing from the experience of mutual aid um, and any barriers that you were aware of that made it much more difficult to, to apply that? There's two things that stand out to me about that, Mike. Firstly, on staffing, I recall that we well utilised a framework that colleagues at DACB helped us with last year to move staff around, the memorandum of understanding that meant that staff could be working in another trust or provider setting, a primary care setting um, within minutes, because essentially we'd underwritten the liabilities and accepted that staff who came to us, if they verified their identity, would be suitably trained and we'd recognise the other trust. Um, assurance on that and that was really fundamental enabling us to move staff to where they needed to to provide patient care and of course to the initiation of the Nightingale not just in London but in the other regions that use the same form of approach. So I think that's something we need to come back to because I think in the future we need to be encouraging a sense that staff are not citizens or employees of individual trusts say in the provider sector but are employed by the NHS and the care system to work across it um, and to move away from this concept that frankly the employment contract you have binds you to a direct uh, and predominant relationship with one organisation. I think if we do that we'll think about further forms of benefit around education, training, deployment that could be really considerable, not least for social care too. The second opportunity I see learning from the pandemic so far relates to procurement. So within the white paper, I think there were helpful proposals to think about how the Health Act of 2012 could be adapted and we could think about devoting more of the resources we have to procuring locally. I think that's fundamentally important because if you go into the procurement warehouse of most of our trusts, you'll see boxes and equipment that come across the world and many of that, much of that equipment does need to come that far. But if we think about the benefits that we can commit to through local procurement in relation to anchoring um, authentically, uh, we should be getting more of our equipment from, from local businesses, in my view, not least because the environmental benefits are the same. And from speaking to many younger colleagues in the NHS joining us, the contribution we make to improving the environment is a fundamental that they'd like us to seize as we integrate care. Thank you, Ben. I think that it, that's a really helpful pointer in terms of thinking about the, the whole of the anchor institution agenda. Adara, can I come back to you on the issue of the memorandums of understanding? Because I know that you were closely involved in drafting that work and overseeing its application in different parts of, of the system. Thank you, Mike. Yes, we produced a framework that the the brief for which was there was an urgent need to ensure that NHS bodies could share employees during the pandemic and we started by producing the work for North Central London and the 
the memorandum that we produced was then used more widely across NHS London and then indeed across the NHS and it was also used for the transfers of staff between the independent, the independent health sector and the NHS and also in terms of supporting the vaccination program so it was really widely used and what was what was the purpose of it the purpose of it was to ensure that with as little uh, legality as possible there was a basic legal framework that allowed NHS bodies and indeed others to to share staff and that's as Ben said really important because during a pandemic as as described by both Ben and Nena you know every NHS body has worked really well and collaboratively together but we all know that once the dust settles uh, legal questions may arise and it's much better to know the ground rules at the outset so that um, if those issues do arise then uh, then they can be resolved with minimum fuss and, and, and minimum effort. So what are the issues that we covered in, in, our, in our MOU that was used so widely across the NHS? And I think for, for us, the important things were, one, identifying employment liabilities. Who was responsible for the staff and employment liabilities that, that flowed as a result? Um, the issue of indemnity, particularly where patients are concerned. You know, where does the NHSR indemnity flow? On, on whose account does it effectively land? We put in place a practical mechanism for requesting staff in that document. At times that, that was overtaken by practical arrangements on the ground, but it was important to have a clear default mechanism for, for how the system would work. We also covered other legal minima such as mandatory checks and training, confidentiality and data protection, and, and what to do if there was a dispute in relation to employees. And the, as I say, the purpose of it was to ensure that with as little fuss as possible, staff could be shared. I want to come back on to the really excellent point that Ben made around seeing staff more within a wider ICS or NHS context than, than an individual employment one. And the, the problem and why we need the, the staff sharing MOU is the law is fundamentally at the moment based upon one employer and one employee. So uh, to the extent that, uh, that anything happens to the individual employee, that employer is liable. And in theory, you can have joint employers, uh, but it becomes a bit more complicated and the liabilities become a bit more complicated. So if we were to move to a broader model of understanding and sharing staff in a, uh, in a, in a, a more flexible way, then unfortunately, unless there is a fundamental change in, in, in how employment law in this country works, then uh, it is still going to need um, the kind of framework that we have used. Um, and, and hopefully that will be um, something which will be um, which will be a benefit for the future. Adara, I think that I think that's really helpful. And as we begin to look at those mutual aid schemes being embedded in business as usual, I, th I think that the issues you've raised there with the MOU are absolutely pertinent. I want to shift as we're moving out of the crisis management phase of COVID um, into sort of it being more of a fact of life. I want to get a bit more of a sense around system working in the recovery program, and particularly the recovery program for electives, which in terms of our public profile are going to increasingly be the centre of the debate for the NHS. Nenny, you've led a huge amount of work within South West London 
in relation to joining up the plans across the four acute hospitals for elective recovery. I wonder if he wants to reflect a little bit around some of the leadership challenges in that, both at an operational level, but also at a clinical level. Thanks, Mike. Um, so I think I would start off by seeing again the uh, incredible and phenomenal work of uh, all our staff in coming together with, with a shared problem and a, and a shared will to find a solution. And I think that was also manifest in, in some of our elective recovery. So for, first to, to recognize that there was a backlog um, over and above the, the traditional backlog and that within that we were concerned uh, that there may be people with needs. One of the first things that was done was to invert our traditional approach of looking based on how long you were on the waiting list to looking at what was the clinical urgency and need. And that was done through a centralized approach uh, using some of the, the colleges and um, regional support. And that allowed us to have a common narrative and a common comparison about the patients we were treating regardless of where we were treating them. The second element was, I think, moving, and Udara and Ben have both picked this up. It, it's that that behavior, that agnostic of an organization, and fits more with the NHS family, and looking not at a single list, uh, but making sure we were having an understanding of the collective list of patients waiting, so that we didn't end up with patients having a longer wait in any one part of the system. And of course, that was replicated within organizations, but more importantly, within uh, the system and also with comparisons made at regional level so that we didn't create even more unwarranted variation by postcode and we looked at things more by need than anything else. On an operational level, uh, there was the, the need for us to, to make sure we didn't cause more harm. So we were doing our best to protect patients and staff from COVID, um, both from acquiring COVID, but also from transmitting COVID. And this is some of the work around the vaccine, which was hugely important, uh, particularly through wave two. But equally, it was about how we separated the actual physical operation so that we minimize the risk of inadvertently acquiring COVID and creating, for want of a better word, green spaces. I think one of the, the learnings, and I think that the white paper starts um, pulling this out, is, is how far we prescribe what the solution looks like and how far we allow for innovation. And I think the move to system allows us to customize our response to the needs of the populations at a footprint that's large enough to deliver at scale, but small enough to deliver to need. Uh, and with that, we had different models of care. So at Croydon, for example, we created the Croydon Elective Centre, and that allowed us to have a space where we could continue to provide care for patients and staff who were screened carefully for COVID, and therefore we were able to continue that, that service. Equally, we, we looked at a different model of, of um, hub functioning, where we looked at designated centres who had the capacity, capability, willingness um, and leadership to take on any backlog work in certain specialties. And that, that ability to not necessarily overload any one site with one specialty uh, was hugely important. I want to call out the, the partnership work with colleagues such as Royal Marsden Partnership. 
we're again working with them and with independent sector colleagues, we were also able to maintain our commitment to care of people who were recently diagnosed or who were yet to be diagnosed or who required treatment for cancer. And so that was another key area of learning and development. In through all of this, one of the, the sort of lasting um, legacies, I hope, and our lasting thinking is around within those lists, are there still disparities in both the way people access, step forward and wait uh, for their care? And is there more work for us to do about how we wait well um, and are recovering well after our various procedures? I speak a lot about surgery, but it's equally apparent and it's equally relevant uh, to other specialties, including medicines, and looking at uh, the disproportionate impact of COVID on different conditions, looking at obesity, looking at gender, looking at race, looking at diabetes and hypertension. So also looking within the recovery space of how we protected patients um, and recovered patients from, from those particular specialty areas. Lastly, I think just to pick up on the post-COVID scenario, where many people, whether they were admitted or not, having had COVID, were left with lasting physical and mental issues. And how we as a system provided uh, ongoing care, even as we tried to manage patients with acute COVID and manage people who were waiting on, on different waiting lists. Again, I will call out the multi-professional, multidisciplinary working. And this was, in real terms, uh, a morning meeting between operational and clinical colleagues every single day across the system. It was a touch point with chief execs every day across the system. It was clinical leadership groups meeting two and three times a week and echoing that at London level so that we were having that shared learning and making sure that even as we prioritize within one system, we didn't create disparities between systems. I think those are some of the examples I'd want to share, Mike. Thank, thanks, Nona. I think that, that's really helpful. I'm going to bring Ben in now uh, because, Ben, you, you clearly have a pivotal leadership role in North East London and within that, that sector moving to a much closer alignment between Bart's Health and BHRUT. Pretty one of the rationales for that is actually dealing, is the capacity to deal with the huge backlog of elective procedures. Do you want to say a little bit about your, your hopes and your concerns about that as we move forward? Yeah, I think the fundamental starting point for that is to ensure we're really clear about the number of people who are waiting for care and their individual circumstances. I think often when we think about waiting lists, we're thinking about a number and we need to be really clear that individual lives are listed on the, the waiting list that we have. And we need to think about those people individually and have a really clear focus on the fact that some of those people are living in particularly vulnerable circumstances. So that, that's the first point in my mind, thinking about your question, Mike. The second is that Many organisations in the NHS rely upon clinical leaders who work across different settings. So, for example, in cardiology at BHRUT, where I work, we have a team of very senior and able clinicians who commonly work across two or three different trusts. And so the alliance there is, is really strong and you feel it and see it when you visit them and, and talk about their working week when they're often jumping between different sites. Uh, providing care across North East London. But it's that type of 
common and united working really to inspire in those specialities where for lots of very fair and good reasons we haven't yet got that form of um, united focus because when you have it clearly you're then able to best utilize resources you have for populations uh, across a particular integrated care system and that's what we aspire to do at, at BHRUT. We've got around 2,000 patients who've unfortunately waited for more than 52 weeks for elective care. We've got neighbours who've got, uh, unfortunately, similar and longer uh, lists. And what we've been doing is thinking about those lists together uh, and how else we can use resources to help each other. One recent example of, of what we've done, very recent example, is work through the weekend. Uh, last weekend to have what we call a scalper project where consultants had the health theatres at hand all the way through the weekend and, and caught up with around 180 patients uh, brought in um, off the waiting list early. And we've got things like Bones Weeks where we're focusing on orthopedics. Uh, and it's encouraging a sense of healthy rivalry between different consultants to catch up the fastest. And we'll need that type of positive commitment, but crucially to back them to have the resources they need for many more evenings and weekends to come. And I'm sure as we do that, uh, we'll see steady progress. As we do it, we need to be really conscious of the, the really uh, unfortunate signs that in some parts of England, there is an additional surge um, in individual place uh, around Bolton and, and other areas at the moment. And of course, we need to have an eye to that because our fundamental purpose in thinking about elective care should be thinking about the safety of it. And there may well, unfortunately, be circumstances in coming weeks and months where we need to adapt our plans. Again, doing that together is the best way that we can catch up and provide elective care we need to. And just a reflection from both of you, I guess, on the, the penalties and the incentives that have been put in place for system working around elective recovery. Nona, any, any reflections on whether this is going to drive different behaviours or if actually the, the behaviours are more rooted in uh, cultural approaches? Uh, good question, Mike. So I think in, in wave one or post wave one, um, we looked at both penalties and incentives for that recovery period. I think moving on, it was more about incentives. And I, I think probably that culturally is, is where we're, we're moving forward. But I think that's been twinned with something that's more fundamental and much more important, which again comes back to this question about need and mutuality in serving the needs of the populations that we are responsible for. So I think that cultural shift is also um, enshrined in, in some of the, the legislation, particularly picking up on, on health inequalities. And so in terms of how we distribute resources and assets to deliver, I think that is probably a more important incentive indicator a driver of change that is equally enshrined in what the white paper describes moving forward and also in the long-term plan and also in the London vision. So I think those cultural aspects are, are going to be perhaps equal if not um, bigger drivers uh, as we as we move forward. And then clearly the community served by BHR has many 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 um, challenges in terms of deprivation and inequalities. Are there any reflections that you would be keen to make on that? So the first is recognising the power we have as a, a very large employer for those communities about the way that we prove that we're a good employer has a fundamental impact on thousands of people 
living locally, either as employees or as people who gain their employment because of the purchasing power and influence of the NHS. The second is thinking about going back to a point that Nena made at the start about the fact that some of our parts of our communities, some places have had a far more difficult 18 months because of COVID than some others. And that means I think we need to follow the cue of primary care, local government, the voluntary community sector in being ready to listen uh, to what they think would be the best forms of response, uh, not just in the next few weeks or months, but in the next few years, and truly ensuring that we commit to partnerships built around their observations and analysis on the needs of communities. Only by doing that will I think we give true meaning to population health management. The third is thinking about positive action. And you know, we need to recognise that for people living in particularly vulnerable circumstances as patients and as, as colleagues, that they deserve to be treated differently. And we need to recognise the limitations of some forms of care um, in the current system, uh, not just in North East London, but I think beyond. We've seen clear evidence, for example, that the provision of care for children and young people who have mental health challenges is insufficient. And I think if we're really testing ourselves as leaders, we need to think more innovatively about solutions achieved at pace that require that we take risk and recognise that there may not be an immediate funding solution that allows for an easy improvement or investment to help uh, people living in such vulnerable circumstances, but a test of the NHS and a fair test what integrated care should provide in the next few years is a far improved form of support, service and commitment uh, to the well-being of, of some population groups. So both North Middlesex and BHR have a number of things in common, uh, but one of those is actually the uh, diversity of their workforce. I'd like us to spend a, a few minutes reflecting upon the equality, diversity and inclusion agenda. Nena, could I come to you first? So I think I would want to start off by celebrating diversity. I think at the minute, um, the way many people speak about diversity is is as though it's it's a problem. It's it's an opportunity, um, and it's something that brings with it amazing. Um, celebration and richness and, and difference. And difference, I think, always raises the bar in the way we think, approach and solve uh, problems. So North Middlesex is uh, a hospital where roughly 60 to 70 percent of its staff is from a minority ethnic group and actually importantly is also a member of the local community, the very definition of an anchor organization. And so when we serve our, our staff, we also serve, serve our local community. I think that there are many elements to, to consider within that. There is there is a richness uh, in the pathology that we see and serve, and I think that attracts staff who are committed to making a difference. And the opportunity to really level up care is, is there for us to take. And I think that's exciting and one of the reasons I want to lead at North Middlesex uh, University Hospital and as part of North Central uh, London system. That said, I think that the historical and current experiences of our staff from diverse backgrounds has been challenging and it has been doubly challenging through COVID. And I speak about double jeopardy when we look at the fact that um, certain ethnic characteristics, gender characteristics um, pre predispose a poorer outcome from COVID. 
but equally there is a hesitancy within people from within these very communities to take up the, the vaccine. And that poses a risk for the future and how we, we manage and dialogue with, with staff moving forward. I think one of the elements that's been particularly enjoyable is having direct outreach conversation uh, with our populations, not, not through the interface of a hospital appointment or an episode of care, but through an interface that is uniquely theirs. And to be able to hear firsthand some of the real lived experiences of what that diversity means and what the history of that diversity means in terms of confidence, uh, both in uh, the, the systems and in the, the experiments that may or may not have been done in, in the past. Um, I think looking at diversity in a broader sense, um, Ben has already highlighted the, the mental health um, disparity, particularly for children and young people. But I think there's also a community with neurodiversity, with dementia, with learning disability, with autism, um, who have also struggled uh, through this period. And it is a group that we are going to need to actively seek out and understand and support. And I think, again, to Ben's point about vertical equity, where there are unequal needs, having an unequal response to support. Um, I'm excited, I think, as we move forward, um, but also a little bit cautious, because this is a space that I think everyone is occupying right now. And I hope that it's not a flash in the pan and actually something that is embedded in how we move forward. And I can see the white paper and the long-term plan that came before it, trying to ensure this is captured in the way we think and measure what we do um, as we move forward. Thank you, Nana. So, so Ben, clearly part of the strategic reset in North East London has put both health inequalities, but also the EDI agenda in relation to staff right at the centre of our recovery. Could you, could you say a little bit from your point of view about the challenges but also your aspirations in relation to EDI? I think the first consideration here is we need to be really clear about the, the nature of the local populations we're serving, both in terms of their diversity but also their hopes and expectations. I think what that means for workforce strategy at the level of system is that we take the opportunity to anchor at that level so that we have commonality in the way we think about the contribution we can make to the economic and social development of, of place, of borough, of community, uh, and of course of the whole system. And indeed, in the case of London, just as Nenem has said, I think there are some really significant opportunities and tests of how authentic that commitment is in the next year or so. And one of those is the London living wage. We need to judge ourselves according to how we treat those colleagues who are coming into the NHS and social care for the first time. The NHS has, in my view, the ability to guarantee the London living wage for all of its employees and contractors. And it's something which I know several of us in London want to give really clear thought to. Alongside to that, I think we need to be really clear how we utilise the apprenticeship levy, and think about first opportunities for people to gain from an opportunity to work in health. And in that regard, I think that there are some limitations around employment policies and even perhaps the legal framework in that regard. I think positive action allows us to think about how we can think about some improvements in the way we bring talent on. But I think we'll need to be more radical in coming years about how we think about that, because unless we are, will probably be more likely to take incremental steps in, in improving uh, the diversity of leadership across our systems, opposed to the more radical options, which I think 
the best in, in commercial and, and, and settings beyond the UK are taking. Thank you. And I, and I think the legal framework question is a really good point, uh, place to bring in Udara to look at um, how we can maximise what limited powers we have in relation to employing positive action techniques. Udara, over to you. Thanks, Mike. I think um, Ben and Nena have made some very important points around employment being a fundamental determinant of health and well-being, about it linking into the wider population health agenda, which the, the white paper drives. And uh, unfortunately for NHS bodies, they are between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, they have a public sector equality duty, which requires them in accordance with all other public bodies to consider how they can promote equality in the provision of their services and in their function of employment. But on the other hand, you are slightly hamstrung by the Equality Act, which, as you and Ben have quite rightly identified, actually only make very small provision for positive action. So what positive action can an employer take? And I think the starting point of the law in this country is that positive action is discrimination. So it in itself has to be justified because otherwise it will be discriminatory to people who are adversely affected by the action that you take. So there is no obligation to take positive action in this country. And if an employer does and they get it wrong, then almost by default, they've committed a discriminatory act for which they potentially expose themselves. And I think it's for that reason that Ben alluded to potentially better regimes um, in other countries where that fear doesn't drive employers into not taking any kind of positive action at all. Turning to what positive action can be taken, it is very circumscribed. So where an employer reasonably thinks that a group who share a protected characteristic suffer from a disadvantage connected to that characteristic, or where they think that the characteristic effectively drives a different need um, from those who don't share that characteristic, or where they think that participation in activity by persons of a certain characteristic are disproportionately low, then they are permitted to take certain positive action. So um, if we think, if we reflect back on the um, opportunities and challenges that we've been discussing today, I'd be interested to get your sense of um, how things will be different for the communities we serve in, say, two years' time. So imagine it's the summer of 2023. Nana, what looks different in North Middlesex? In the summer of 2023, I would like to think that we will have a clear understanding of our population and that that's insight that's gained with our population, not just of our population. This is about data in terms of population health data, but also in terms of the really important personal story insight data. So I'd like to think that we have a shared and accurate understanding. Secondly, I would like to think, and I think as Ben put it beautifully actually, there's something about celebrating diversity, but in a way that recognizes um, cohorts' definitions of themselves. So we, we speak about underprivileged populations, whereas were you to live amongst the population, 
they would describe themselves with strength and pride. So I'd like to think in 2023, we are talking with celebration uh, around our population. Uh, thirdly, and in terms of what we are delivering from a health sector, I would like to think again that we have reached a point where we are closer to a, um, a raised bar and a narrow gap and that we can demonstrate that through the knowledge and active intervention, we have absolutely reduced the bar in terms of healthcare access, probably a little bit too early to talk about healthcare outcomes, but that we have started to seed some of the preventative elements that will start driving those outcomes in years to come. Thank you, Nana. Ben, what looks different in Northeast London? I think the first thing I think about a summer in 2023 is I'd love it for families to be able to have a form of holiday that uh, many of us have missed out on, and many, and many staff have missed out on in recent summers, and that young people and students who typically get a break from education have that break with people close to them in the way they want to. The second thing I think that's really important through up to summer 2023 and beyond it is an increased sense of candour in the NHS, that people can feel truly willing and competent that they can speak openly about how they want to improve things, because I think the ingredients to much of what we want to achieve rely upon that. And the third consideration, I think, is going back to the essentiality of utilising the very best people we have available to us to inspire improvements across communities. And so I hope we're more open-minded uh, than we perhaps have been on occasions in recent years, certainly by 2023. Thank you both very much. And Madara, thank you as well. Thank you.